Chapter 1 of Our Master Thoughts for Salvationists About Their Lord This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Hirsch Our Master Thoughts for Salvationists About Their Lord by Bramwell Booth Chapter 1 the man for the century. Number one, the need. The new century has its special need. The need of the twentieth century will be men. In every department of the world's life or labor, that is the great want. In religion, in politics, in science, in commerce, in philanthropy, in government, all other necessities are unimportant by comparison with this one. Given men of a certain type, and the religious life of the world will thrive and throb with the love and will of God, and overcome all opposition. Given men of the right stamp, and politics will become another word for benevolence. Provided true men are available, science will take her place as the handmaid of revelation. If only men of power and principle are at hand, commerce will prosper as she has never yet prospered, rooted in the great law which Christ laid down for her, Do unto others, as ye would that they should do unto you. If the men are found to guide it, philanthropy will become a golden ladder of opportunity by which all in misfortune and misery may climb, not only to sufficiency and happiness here, but to purity and plenty forever. And given the men of heart, head, and hand for the task, the government of the kingdoms of this world will yet become a fulfillment of the great prayer of Jesus. Thy will be done on earth, as it is done in heaven. But all, or nearly all, depends on the men. Number two, the man. The new century will demand men. But if men, then certainly a man. Human nature has, after all, more influence over human nature than anything else. Abstract laws are of little moment to us until we see them in actual operation. The law of gravitation is but a matter of intelligent wonder while we view its influence in the movements of revolving planets or falling stars. But when we see a baby fall terror-stricken from its little cradle to the floor, the attraction of large bodies for small ones takes on a new and heartfelt meaning. The beauty of devotion to truth in the face of opposition hardly stirs an emotion in many of us, as we regard it from the safe distance of our own self-satisfied liberty. But when we see the lonely martyr walk with head erect through the raging mob, and kiss the stake to which he is soon to be bound, when we watch him burn until the kindly powder explodes about his neck, and sends him to exchange his shirt of flame for the robe he has washed in the blood of the Lamb, then the beauty, the sincerity, the greatness, 
the godlikeness of sacrifice, especially of sacrifice for the truth, comes home to us and captures even the coldest hearts and the dullest minds. The revelation of Jesus in the flesh was a recognition of this principle. The purpose of his life and death was to manifest God in the flesh, that he might attract man to God. He took human nature that human nature might see the best of which it was capable. He became a man that men might know to what heights of power a man might rise. He became a man that men might know to what lengths and breadths of love and wisdom a man might attain. He became a man that men might know to what depths of love and service a man might reach. The men we need then for the 20th century will find the pattern man ready to their hand. Be the demands of the coming years what they may, God is able to raise up men to meet them. Men after his own likeness, men of right, men of light, men of might, men who will follow him in the desperate fight with the hydra-headed monsters of evil of every kind, and who will, by his name, deliver the souls of men from the slavery of sin and the hell to which it leads. Number three, standards. The new century will demand high standards, both of character and conduct. Explain it how we may. The fact is evident that religion has greatly disappointed the world. The wretched distortion of Christ's teaching which appears in the lives and businesses of tens of thousands of professed Christians, the namby-pambyism of the mass of Christian teachers towards the evil of sin, and the unholy union in nearly all the practical proceedings of life between the world and the bulk of the Christian churches, no doubt largely account for this, so far as Christianity is concerned. Mohammedanism is in a still worse plight, for though, alas, it increases even faster than Christianity, it is helpless at the heart. The mass of its devotees know that between its highest teaching and its best practice there is a great gulf, and they are slowly beginning to look elsewhere for rules by which to guide their lives. And what is true of Mohammedanism is true also of Buddhism, the great religion of the East. Its teachers have largely ceased to be faithful to their own faith, and as a consequence, that faith is a declining power. Beautiful as much of its teaching undoubtedly is, millions who are nominally Buddhist are estranged by its failures, and are, with increasing unrest, looking this way and that for help in the battle with evil, and for hope amidst the bitter consciousness of sin. Such is a cursory view of the attitude of the opening century towards the great faiths of the world. Perhaps one word, more than another, sums it all up, especially as regards Christianity. And that word is neglect. Cold, stony neglect. And yet men are still demanding standards of life and conduct. The open materialist, 
the timid agnostic, no less than the avowedly selfish, the vicious and the vile, are asking with a hundred tongues and in a thousand ways, who will show us any good? The universal conscience, unbribed, unstifled as on the fateful day in Eden, conscience, the only thing in man left standing erect when all else fell, still cries out, you ought, still rebels at evil, still compels the human heart to cry for rules of right and wrong, and still urges man to the one and withholds him from the other. And it is for one reason, because Jesus can provide these high standards for men, that I say he is the man for the century. The laws he has laid down in the Gospels, and the example he furnished of obedience to those laws in the actual stress and turmoil of a human life, afford a standard capable of universal application. The ruler contending with unruling men, the workman fighting for consideration from a greedy employer, the outcast struggling like an Ishmaelite with society for a crust of bread, the dark-skinned, sad-eyed mother sending forth her only babe to perish in the waters of the sacred river of India, thus giving the fruit of her body for the sin of her soul the proud and selfish noble, abounding in all he desires except the one thing needful, the great multitude of the sorrowful, which no man can number, who refuse to be comforted, the dying, whose death will be an unwilling leap in the dark, all these, yea, and all others, may find in the law of Christ that which will harmonize every conflicting interest, which will solve the problems of human life, which will build up a holy character, which will gather up and sanctify everything that is good in every faith and in every man, and will unite all who will obey it in the one great brotherhood of the one fold and the one shepherd. Number four, Liberty. The new century will call for freedom in every walk of human life. That bright dream of the ages, liberty, how far ahead of us she still lies. What a bondage life is to multitudes. What a vast host of the human race, even of this generation, will die in slavery. Actual physical bondage. Slaves in Africa in China, in Eastern Europe, in the far isles of the sea and dark places of the earth, cry to us and perish while they cry. What a host still larger are in the bondage of unequal laws. Little children, stricken, cursed, and damned, and there is none to deliver. Young men and maidens, bound by hateful customs, ruined by wicked associations, torn by force of law from all that is best in life, and taught all that is worst. Nine men out of ten in one of the great European armies are said to be debauched morally and physically by their military service, 
and all the men in the nation are bound by law to serve. What a host, larger again than both the others, of every generation of men are bound by custom in the service of cruelty. It is supposed that every year a million little children die from neglect, willful exposure, or other form of cruelty. Think of the bondage of those who kill them. Look at the cruelty to women, the cruelty of war, the cruelty to criminals, the cruelty to animal creation. What a mighty force the slavery of cruel customs still remains. All that is best in man is crying out for emancipation from this bondage, and I know of no deliverance so sure, so complete, so abiding as that which comes by the teaching and spirit of Jesus. But even if freedom from all these hateful bonds could come and could be complete without him, there still remains a serfdom more degrading, a bondage more inexorable than any of these. For men are everywhere the bond slaves of sin. Look out upon the world, upon your own part of it, even upon your own family or household and see how evil holds men by one chain or another, and grips them body and soul, this one by doubt, this by passion, this by envy, this by lust, this by pride, this by strife, this by fear, this one by love of gold, this one by love of the world, and this one by hatred of God. Is it not so? What men want, then, is personal, individual liberty from sin. Given that, and a slave may be free. Given that, and the child in the nursery of iniquity may be free. Given that, and the young man or maiden held in the charnel house of lust may be free given that and the victim of all that is most cruel and most brutal in life may still be free. O blessed be God, he whom the Son makes free is free indeed. This and this alone is the liberty for the new century, the gospel liberty from sin for the individual soul and spirit, without respect of time or circumstance and here alone is he who can bestow it, Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This, I say, is the man for the new century. Number 5. Knowledge The new century will be marked by a universal demand for knowledge. One of the most remarkable features of the present time is the extraordinary thirst for knowledge in every quarter of the world. It is not confined to this continent or that. It is not peculiar to any special class or age. It is universal. One aspect of it, and a very significant one, is the desire for knowledge about life and its origin, about the beginnings of things about the earth and its creation, about the work which we say God did, 
which he alone could do. Oh, how men search and explore, how they read and think, how they talk and listen. Where one book was read a generation ago, a hundred, I should think, are read now. And for one newspaper then read, there are now probably a thousand. Every man is an inquiry agent, seeking news, information, or instruction, seeking to know what will make life longer for him and his, and above all, what can make it happier. And here again I say that Jesus is the man for the new century. He has knowledge to give, which none other can provide. I do not doubt that universities and schools and governments and great press can and will do much to impart knowledge of all sorts to the world, but when it comes to knowledge that can serve the great end for which the very power to acquire knowledge was created, namely the true happiness of man, then I say that Jesus is the source of that knowledge, that without him it cannot be found or imparted, and that with him it comes in its liberating and enlightening glory. Oh, be sure you have that. No amount of learning will stand you in its stead, no matter how you may have stored your mind with the riches of the past or tutored it to grapple with the mysteries of the present. Unless you know him, it will all amount to nothing. But if you know him who is life, that is life eternal. Knowledge without God is like a man learned in all the great mysteries of light and heat who has never seen the sun. He may understand perfectly the laws which govern them, the results which follow them, the secrets which control their action on each other, all that is possible, and yet he will be in the dark. So too, knowledge, learning, human education, and wisdom are all possible to man. He may even excel in them so as to be a wonder to his fellows by reason of his vast stores of knowledge, and yet know nothing of that light within the mind by which he apprehends them. Nay, more, he may even be a marvelous adept in the theory of religion, and yet, alas, alas, may never have seen its sun, may still be in the blackness of gross darkness, because he knows not Jesus, the light of the world, whom to know is life eternal. Number 6. Government. The new century will demand governors. Every thoughtful person who considers the subject must be struck by the modern tendency towards personal government all over the world. Whatever may be the form of national government prescribed by the various constitutions, it tends, when carried into practice, to give power and authority to individual rulers. Whether in monarchies like England, where Parliament is really the ruling power, or in republics like France and the United States, where what are called democratic institutions are seen in their maturity, 
or in empires like Germany and Austria, the same leading facts appear. Power goes into the hands of one or two who, whether as ministers or presidents or monarchs, are the real rulers of the nation. Perfect laws, liberal institutions, patriotic sentiments, though they may elevate, can never rule a people. A crowd of legislators, no matter how devoted to a nation, can never permanently control, though they may influence it. Out of the crowd will come forth one or two, generally one commanding personality, strong enough to stand alone, though wise enough not to attempt it. In him will be focused the ideas and ambitions of the nation. To him the people's hearts will go out, and from him they will take the word of command as their virtual ruler. It has ever been so. It is so today. It will always be so. And as with the nations, so with individuals. Every man must have a king. Call him what we will, recognize him or not. Every man is the subject of some ruler. And this will, if possible, be more manifest in the future than in the past. Men will not be satisfied to serve ideas, to live for the passing ambitions of their day. They will cry out for a king. Am I wrong when I say that Jesus is the coming king? In him are assembled in the highest perfection all the great qualities which go to make the king of men. And so the new century will need him, must have him. Nay, it cannot prosper without him, the divine man, for he is the rightful sovereign of every human soul. Number 7. A New Force the new century will demand great moral forces as well as high ideals. Nothing is more evident than that the forms and ceremonies of religion are rapidly losing, even in nominally Christian countries, all real influence over the lives of men. The form of godliness without the power is not only the greatest of all shams, but it is the most easily detected. Hence it is that a large part of mankind is either disgusted to hostility or utterly estranged from the real religion by theories and ceremonials which, though they may continue to exist in shadow, have lost their life and soul. For example, the old lie that money paid to a church can buy indulgences, which will release men in the next world from the penalty of sin committed in this, and the miserable theory which made God the direct author of eternal damnation to those who are lost, are among the theories which, though they are still taught and professed here and there, have long ago ceased to have real influence over men's hearts or actions. In the same way, there are multitudes who still conform to the outward ceremony of confirmation, upon whose salvation from sin or separation from the world that ceremony has absolutely no influence whatever, although for custom's sake they submit to it. 
but a greater danger than this lies in the fact that it is possible to hold and believe the truth and yet to be totally ignorant of its power sound doctrine will of itself never save a soul a man may believe every word of the faith of a churchman or a salvationist and yet be as ignorant of any real experience of religion as an infidel or an idolater and it is this merely intellectual or sentimental holding of the truth about god and christ about holiness and heaven which makes the ungodly mass look upon christianity as nothing more than an opinion or a trade a something with which they have no concern the new century will demand something more than this men will require something beyond creeds be they ever so correct and traditions be they ever so venerable and sacraments be they ever so sacred they will ask for an endowment of power to grapple with what they feel to be base in human nature and to master what they know is selfish and sinful in their own hearts and right here the man for the century comes forward the doctrine of jesus is the spirit of a new life it is a transforming power a man may believe that the american republic is the purest and noblest form of government on the earth and may give himself up to live and fight and die for it and yet be the same man in every respect as he was before but if he believes with his heart that jesus is the christ the son of god and gives himself up to live and fight and die for him he will become a new man he will be a new creature the acceptance of the truth and acting upon it in the one case will make a great change in his manner of life his conduct the acceptance of the truth and acting upon it in the other will make a great change in the man himself in his tastes and motives in his very nature again i say this is what we shall need for the new century not good laws only but the power to observe them not beautiful and lofty ideals only but the power to translate them into the daily practice of common lives not merely the glorious examples of pure faith but the actual force which enables men to live by that faith amid the littleness the depression the contamination and the conflict of an evil world number eight atonement the new century will demand an atonement for sin the consciousness of sin is the most enduring fact of human experience from generation to generation from age to age amid the ceaseless changes which time brings to everything else this one great fact remains persists the condemning consciousness of sin it appears with men in the cradle and goes with them to the tomb 
without regard to race or language or creed, it is ever with us. It was this robbed Eden of its joys. It is this makes life a round of labor and sorrow. It is this gives death its terrors. It is this makes the place of torment which men call hell, for the unceasing consciousness of sin will be the worm that never dies. All attempts to explain it away, to modify its miseries, to extract its sting, whether they have come from the party of unbelief, or the party of education, or the party of amusement, have failed, and failed utterly. No matter what men say or do to get rid of it, there it is, staring them in the face. Whether they look amongst the most highly civilized people or amongst the lowest savages, whether they look into the past history of mankind or into its present condition, there is the stupendous fact of sin, and there is the incontrovertible fact that everywhere men are conscious of it. It is going to be so in this twentieth century. If God, in his mercy, allows the families of men to continue during another hundred years, this great fact will still stand out in the forefront of life. Sin will still be the skeleton at every feast the horrid ghost haunting every home and every heart, the specter clothed with reproaches, ever ready to plunge his dripping sword into every breast. Sin, the world's sin, the sin of this one generation, the sin of one city, the sin of one family, the sin of one man, my sin. Ah, depend upon it, the twentieth century will cry aloud, What shall be done with our sin? Yet thanks be to God, there is an atonement. The man of whom I write has made a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He stands forth the only Savior. None other has ever dared even to offer to the sin-stricken hearts of men relief from the guilt of sin. But he does. He can cleanse. He can pardon. He can purify. He can save. Because he has redeemed. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us unto God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people, and nation. Will you come and join in our great world mission of making his atonement known? Will you turn your back on the littleness, and selfishness, and cowardice of the past, and arise in the strength of the God-man, to publish to all you can reach, by tongue, and pen, and example, that there is a sacrifice for men's sins? for the worst, for the most wretched, for the most tortured? As you set your face with high resolve toward the unknown years, take your stand with the man for all the ages, and let this be your message, 
your confidence, your hope for all men. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. End of chapter 1 Recording by Tom Hirsch